Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. Hi, I'm Scott Postma, host of the Consortium Podcast, and Joffrey is our co-host, academic advisor, and we have a special guest, Joffrey. Yeah, as a language teacher on a classical Christian platform, I am excited that we have Jonathan Roberts from the Ancient Language Institute here to talk about teaching language, learning language. Welcome. Scott Joffrey, thanks for having me. Excited to uh, discuss with you about uh, classical education and languages. Fabulous. Well, I think a great place to start, Jonathan, is maybe tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and about the Ancient Language Institute, why you started this, and yeah, we'll go from there. Yeah, so I am originally from Aguascalientes, Mexico, so I grew up uh, speaking English and Spanish and Spanglish, so I always had (laughs) (laughs) several languages at hand, and I did my undergraduate at the King's College in New York City. I studied politics, philosophy, and economics over there. And after my time in New York, I taught um, Spanish and Latin at a classical charter school in Phoenix, uh, Great Hearts Academies. And it was during that time that the seeds of what would eventually become the Ancient Language Institute were planted. So I was teaching Latin, I was teaching Spanish, and this was the first year that that school had offered Spanish, so I was in in total control. Part of the deal, when when I first approached the headmaster asking him, hey, can I teach Latin? He said, yeah, but you have to teach Spanish too. So (laughs) this is the first time that they had uh, offered Spanish, and I had full full control. And after a few weeks, I just threw the textbook away because it was like, "This this is painful. If it's hurting me, if this is painful for me, this is this must be torture for for the students. Um, so from the beginning, it was a full immer- immersion sort of course. I told students, you have 30, se- 30 seconds, 30 minutes to write down your questions in English, and then we will talk about them, and then you won't hear me talk in English after that. So they were writing down their questions, you know. And and then after that, after answering their questions, I only spoke to them in, in Spanish. And so at the end of at the end of one year, I had students who were able to tell jokes in Spanish. Uh, they were watching TV shows in Spanish. Like we would we would end the class, right? It was the last class of the day, and we would walk out of the classroom and we would be chatting in Spanish. And then I looked and I saw my Latin students, and it's like, wow, what? What was the difference here? My Latin students can't tell jokes in Latin. At that point, I couldn't either. <laughs> and so uh, that, that's, that got me thinking, like, what is going on here? And eventually what, what, um, what I realized that it's, it's not a difference in the languages, right? They're both languages. Mm-hmm. They're both learnable. <laughs> and it's just a method. It just the I use very different methods without really you know thinking very carefully about what I was doing, and so got very, very different results. And so in the fall of uh, 2019, I co-founded the Ancient Language Institute, and part of its mission is to use the um, the resources of second language acquisition research and apply those insights to the learning of ancient languages. So that's 
that's a quick um, overview of, of myself and what we're up to at over at the Ancient Language Institute. Fabulous. Now, Joffrey may have some follow-up questions, particular, uh, particularly in the realm of the, you know, the language acquisition aspect of this. But I'm interested to know, you know, having uh, been an administrator of a couple of different schools and then uh, being a teacher myself, um, did you approach the school uh, to ask, could you, you know, can you teach this way? I mean, was it, um, why, why start a different school versus teaching it that way with your students where you were at? Okay, so so after my time at Great Hearts Academies, I let I went off to um, to do a master's in philosophy at the University of Missouri at St. Louis. So at that point, I you know I wasn't staying there. I was still thinking through things. You know, th- um, ideas were in the crockpot of the uh-huh. mind, but nothing nothing <laughs> uh, nothing completed. I did teach at a different institution that maybe will will forego the name for now. Um, where I had come to more uh, certain conclusions as to how to how to teach uh, Latin, and I noticed that all of the teachers were pretty much on the same page. Interesting. Right? It's like this is what this is what we all think we should be doing, but it's uh, sometimes it's not the teachers that you need to persuade. Mm-hmm. It's the um, as the admin that needs to, you know, you, that's where you need the real rhetorical power. Okay. So, um, so it, to get, to get things done. So initially, uh, it, it wasn't that the original institution where these ideas started percolating, it wasn't that they resisted it. Uh, but you did face resistance later on as you tried to, to bring this, you know, to the forefront, this idea, um, and and so uh, these are some years of percolating and thinking about this this idea of how to you know acquire a language in a, in a different sort of format. Um, so can you talk a little bit about this language acquisition method? This total immersion. What does that mean? What does that you you've already mentioned the fact that students don't get to speak in their native language; they have to speak or hear you you know teach in this. Uh, language they're learning, but can you explain a little bit more about the research and about the the practice of it? Yeah, so second language acquisition research is one of those fields of academic research that kind of um, matches along with common sense. So if you read it, rare bird right there, <laughs> academia and common read, sense. Did you say those both in the same sentence? Yeah, I know, I know. And I'm not even drinking whatever you guys are drinking. Um, so, so one of the um, one of the one of the key insights, for instance, of second language acquisition research is that one acquires a language through extensive exposure to comprehensible input. So it still has its own jargon, but it can be translated into human speech pretty easily. Um, so what you need is exposure to content and the target language that you can understand and find compelling. Uh, this is quite different from, for instance, memorizing charts. If you spend all your time looking at charts, you're not really interacting that much with the language as a language. You're looking at it from from a bird's eye view, so to speak, and not really getting into the forest and getting acquainted with with all the trees, which is what what you need. So second language acquisition research, though, it's it's mainly uh, prescriptive. It It doesn't really tell you like, okay, this is what you need to do. What it tells you is that this is 
how human beings actually learn languages. So they need to, they need exposure to um, to the target language as much as possible. And so that's what we try to facilitate. We try to put students in situations where they are exposed to as much Latin or as much Greek and eventually as much Hebrew as they can understand and <clears throat> put them on a, on a gradual path where it just keeps getting more and more um, difficult. But it's done in, in such a way that it's, you know, it's a lot of small steps uh, as opposed to um, getting them to climb the mountain from, from day one. And I'd love for you uh, to unpack a little bit, uh, maybe what that exposure looks like in a textual sense, but also in an oral sense. Uh, on your website, ancientlanguage.com, you have an article in which you're talking about C.S. Lewis and how he, he came to, uh, at least his further studies in ancient language. And you're talking about daily habits and constant reading being incurably bookish. And you say more than once, Lewis writes of the long hours he spent poring over epics and poems as a student. He was actually reading the great works. In short, he was getting large doses of comprehensible input uh, by prioritizing speed over accuracy, which is a very interesting note I'd love for you to address. Lewis simply got more input. Contrast this with the approach in most Latin classrooms. Today's teachers want accuracy over speed. Uh, so there's a lot to unpack there, but in particular, I'd be interested for you. you know, so I, I think it would be easy for our audience to imagine in studying classical languages, um, exposing yourself to long texts. And that's mm -hmm. clearly a part of your vision. But then what about the oral aspect? In particular, I think of the myriad of pastors who go through seminary who can, with a reference, they'll say they they speak Greek, <laughs> but then they, they have a reference work next to them to like to parse some some verse in Koine Greek. And they couldn't speak to right. save their lives. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of the textual aspect, so what, what we do, uh, we have our students read readers, either in Greek or in Latin, that, you know, they're all stories. All right. It's, it's, that's what's going to be compelling to regular human beings, stories. <clears throat> and they start fairly easily. So for instance, the Latin book that we use begins with the sentence, Roma in Italia est. Okay. And everyone, everyone, like, okay. <laughs> you know, people read the first the first chapter of that book, of Familia Romana. Like, oh, I know Latin. Why, why am I even taking a course? Um, this is so doable. And that's that's kind of how they get exposed to a lot of text that they can understand. So as we we select the readings pretty pretty carefully. And with Latin, there really is nothing that compares to Familia Romana. And in fact, there really isn't anything for any language that compares to Familia Romana in terms of the uh, pedagogical craftsmanship of that book. Mm. Um, it's, just, it's, just a, it's just an amazing work of art in terms of the pedagogy. So they get, they get a lot of exposure to text in that way. And in terms of you know, classroom interaction, <clears throat> there's a lot that you can do um, for instance, you know, my students can see my dinosaurs that so you can see behind them and I can use dinosaurs as examples. I have my mini, mini gladiolus, little sword, <laughs> right? Just things that they can see and I can, I can speak about things that they can see, right? Once they, once they understand the verb to see, videre, or to hear, audire, 
there's just so much that that you can do with what's right in front of you, mm. right? Uh, even better than a flashcard is me like getting a teddy bear and saying "Eke Ursus." Just so the audience Um, knows, he's showing us his gladiolus (laughs) and his teddy bear on video. (laughs) Just so the listener knows. Uh, It's a great teddy bear. Well, but before you continue on, I I think also for our listeners it would be important. uh, There's a lot of folks who would assume that you would begin with learning declensions and cases and, you know, the the grammar. But you're saying you're you're taking it – you're going the opposite way, right? So where where do the declensions and the grammar – how does that follow with – learning these vocabulary words and the stories? Great. Yeah. So we are actually what um, might be called a mixed method um, approach, or or we take a mixed method approach. We are not um, dogmatic about, you know, we can call it a natural method. Um, I I much prefer the direct method and we can, we can talk about some of that later in terms of the, in terms of the terminology, but natural method, real, the term, gives you a sense as to what what, what it is. Uh, but from the beginning, we do have students learning grammar. Mm-hmm. We do have students study grammar, but it's not the meat and potatoes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, it's just enough <laughs> little salts, sprinkles of grammar um, to get you going. But we don't even start with grammar. So for instance, we have students read the chapter um, and then we have them study the grammar. So at that point, when they're looking at the grammar, they're not just studying like abstract ideas that they've never seen put into practice. I mean, imagine <clears throat> imagine having a recipe for making mole. Well, maybe it's not the greatest example for, for everyone, but mole is one of, example. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those great dishes that you have to have. <laughs> it's got chocolate it's got peppers it's got bread it's just amazing but just imagine you have this recipe and you're just looking at it right and you're just and you just never get to taste it mm-hmm. um <clears throat> what's gonna get you more motivated tasting the mole or looking at the recipe right you absolutely gotta, great illustration you got <laughs> you gotta taste the mole and so that's kind of the approach that that we take you got you get a taste of the language then you kind of get to see, you know, behind the scenes, so to speak, and you understand what the grammar uh, explanations are talking about because you've already seen it in action. So there's a question that uh, is really beginning to froth to the top here that I think we're going to have to address. Um, I think it's it'll be easy for our, our listeners to imagine that what you're describing is an excellent way to acquire a language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a lot of different pedagogies out there in this world, Scott. There are. Here's the question, though. Is this even classical? The the method. Yeah, well, the yeah, way you teach asking. language. Is it classical education? So the so there's different, um, I guess, different ways to slice that question. One <laughs> is... <laughs> so diplomatic. Yeah, yeah, it was very diplomatic. <laughs> um, one is thinking in terms of the the language pedagogy itself. Like, is the, is the pedagogy of you know teaching languages in this way classical? And um, it seems like when you look at the history of pedagogy, we don't really see a single 
uh, approach to pedagogy. We see different things happening at mm -hmm. different points in time. So, for instance, when we look at Greeks trying to learn Latin um, in, in ancient Rome, what they did was what we might call a conversational approach, right? Mm -hmm. They have these conversation guides with Greek and Latin, like, what do you do at the supermarket, right? And this is kind of how a lot of Spanish uh, curricula is set up. It's like, how do you go to the taco stand and order tacos? Yeah, I mean, there's so right? many memes out there. If, you know, uh, if you're like us, you probably follow a lot of classical education meme pages. <laughs> yes, they exist. There's so many memes about, you know, French class, you learn how to say, where's the bathroom? Spanish class, where's the bathroom? Latin class. You know? <laughs> now that we have lost the battle, I will cast myself from the, from <laughs> right. the city walls. <laughs> right, right. And it's, it's, uh, it's fitting. It makes sense. Latin doesn't have a single word that means yes. And there's not a word for yes, but there's many, many words that mean to kill. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that, that meme is very, very much uh, grounded in the reality of, of the Latin language. Uh, so with, with these Greek, you know, learners of Latin, they're doing a similar thing. They're, they're trying to uh, learn how to speak in a practical context. Mm. And that's how often we think of modern languages, right? Those are the practical yes. languages. Mm -hmm. So, so we want to... Mm -hmm. You're yeah. saying you're saying that that practical language education, uh, you know, may, maybe we're loading too much weight onto the word practical, but it is a part of the classical tradition. And I do find uh, that as, as families are trying to bring about a classical education renaissance, that we often get caught up just because of the books we've read, sure. and, you know, and, and not just talking about books on teaching, but then, you know, the, the novels we've read, et cetera, you know, we, we commit this anachronism and we think that classical education is Edwardian or Victorian, right? Right. When it's not, it's actually much profounder and has a much longer history and much more breadth than than we think. If 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 what we picture is an Edwardian academy, like kids at Eton or whatever, right? Right. And to bring in an, an earlier analogy used in a in an episode, you know, the river's pretty. Uh, an earlier episode, you use this, mm -hmm. you know, the river analogy. So the river's pretty broad in terms of approaches to learning language, is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you see, for instance, in the in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance, um, teachers attempting to you know have their students learn Latin in different ways, <clears throat> um, with pretty severe punishments. Like you can only speak in Latin in the playground, and if you don't, you get beaten. Um, so, but the goal there, though, is that eventually some of these students would be taking courses in Latin. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, they would be studying theology in Latin. So they'd be they'd be Latin speakers. Right, right. Yes. Well, and what you're describing sounds a lot like the very way we learn our native language. Right, we don't start out, you know, as a one or two year old learning grammar. We're just speaking, having conversations, and then later on, we're corrected that this, you know, that's a plural verb, or you know, you you need to have a, you know, you, right, you, you know, you you can't speak, you can't use it this way. You you need to use this pronoun instead or whatever the the little grammar nuances we learn later on but we learn to speak and communicate even if it's not totally accurate that's how we learn our native language you know and i do find as a as a modern languages teacher uh that you know one of the biggest hurdles uh, you need to overcome both an individual student and then in, in a group setting is uh 
the overemphasis on trying to get things right as opposed mm-hmm. to just speaking right. And it's difficult for some personalities and uh, for some cultures right. um, to go ahead and just put themselves out there and learn by making mm-hmm. mistakes. Sure. Right. And, and so then I think when we're talking about Ready? Dead languages. <laughs> Sorry, I said that to hurt you, Jonathan. <laughs> uh, that, that's yeah. even more. That becomes even more exaggerated, right? The the idea that we'll just we'll just figure this out, right? We'll imagine we're in the street in ancient Rome looking for the market, mm-hmm. uh, and we're going to make this happen. Uh, that's not even on our radar screen. Yeah. And by the way, I prefer dynamic and static that just seems a little bit <laughs> <laughs> no, i would never use that term in real life here no, i just I said it to provoke our guest yeah i do i do have a, a short semi-fiery blog post i mean you know the spice must flow as they say <laughs> yes the yes. spice must flow uh on on the term dead language mm-hmm. because a, a dead language it's supposed it's it describes a language that does not have a community of native speakers. And it has this idea that eventually this language is going to disappear. Right. It's it's part of a it's part of a transitionary phase, right? And there's the dead language phase, and then it goes extinct, it dies. So so this there's several articles, mostly from the 70s and 80s, about um, language extinction and language death. Now think think about this. Think about the Middle Ages or the early modern era, where pretty much every single educated person knows Latin, can speak Latin. It's the language, not only of learning but of diplomacy, of you know international affairs, <clears throat> of uh, of you know, politics, of theology, and it's the international tongue. It's kind of like what English is today, mm-hmm. or it was kind of similar to what English is today. And the term dead language would, would still fit for, for the time when Latin was the international tongue. So it's kind of like, I, I'm always suspicious as to the, the usefulness and historical correctness of the term uh, dead language. Oh, of course. And, you know, there there is a community of language speakers and it's not just a hobbyist community. But, you know, I, I worked uh, I worked for a ministry uh, that uh, recorded audio Bibles for minority language groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, of course, we also partnered a lot with the actual translation agencies. And, you know, both we and, and all of our partners were constantly making decisions to, you know, involve people's lives and a whole lot of money in producing Bibles for a hundred people, mm-hmm. you know, who had, I mean, this, their languages were alive. <clears throat> you know, there are some languages where you can clearly see, like, it's just, it's on its way out. Even if there are a thousand speakers, like the way, like the, the, it won't be able to sustain itself. But then you have little groups that have been a hundred speakers for a few generations. Sure. And so, you know, like what constitutes a, a spoken language? I mean, the term dead language you need to have zero speakers. Right. And, and there are Latin speakers and they're not all in the Vatican. I don't even speak Latin. And I watch a YouTuber. I watch all of his videos in Latin. <laughs> you know, like I just, for whatever reason, I just love watching this guy. But you know, that who, who he, he has a whole community. Oh goodness. I forget his name. He's bald and is a. Uh, okay. So Luke Ranieri, he's, yes. he's one of our teachers. Oh, is he? He's fantastic. Yeah. I love his videos. You should tell him that. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, his his uh, his Greek videos he now has twelve are really amazing. Yeah, I uh, um, I, I haven't had the courage to. Look. I can actually I can fudge my way through a lot of his Latin, but now the but Greek the would Greek just blow me out of the water. Yeah. <laughs> well, so if, uh, but, if a lane, so, oh, go ahead. You you continue. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of return to the the question that I <clears throat> so diplomatically evaded about like is this classical education? I <laughs> kind of take a take another take another angle. Um, uh, another look at it. So if we look at the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and the Reformation, and we look at their educational projects and think about the role of, of Latin, like what is the role of Latin in those educational projects? Latin isn't the, you know, the culmination right, of, of your studies. Mm-hmm. Latin is kind of like the price of entry. That's the grammar of it, mm. yeah. And it's like, are you this tall <laughs> to have an education, <laughs> right? Do you know Latin? That's that's kind of the role of Latin. Latin is the the first step into just a broader, you know, tradition of of learning. So it's not it's not the end. It's the it's the beginning in a sense. I now, love. Is that true? Sorry, I, is that true for today? I mean, if if there aren't as many Latin speakers, it's not as you mentioned. English is sort of the the language now of commerce and 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 life. Right. Um, why should Latin then be studied? What would what would be the you know what would be the motivation uh, for studying Latin if it's not quite as influential as it as it was? Yeah. So, oh boy, there's a lot of things that one could say there. <clears throat> but the first, the first thing that comes to, to my mind is if we neglected the study of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. So those are those are the those are the hills, right? Those are the hills that, that I think we we should be uh, at least willing to heavily defend, uh, if not die on. If we do not, if we neglect the study of those languages, that would be such a huge civilizational loss, because. In those languages, there are, you know, literatures, there are mounds of gold that helped shape our civilization. And not, not only that, you know, there's not, not simply the kind of historical interest, um, but there's just a lot of wisdom to be gained from paying attention to these, to these texts. But Jonathan, I have to ask, and I know I'm interrupting you in, in your flow here. Why can't I just read a translation in English? Come on. <laughs> yeah. So that is a, that's actually a that's very a wonderful good question. setup. Yeah. And, and <laughs> you gotta spike this down with yeah. some, some force. <laughs> yeah, that is a great question. And I think that we need to think about, you know, what 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 is a translation? And how do we get them? And um, and what what is the value of translations relative to reading the, the you know the source itself? So, for instance, you know the that's the that's the Renaissance and Reformation cry, right? Ad fontes, mm-hmm. and you're not really you're not really going ad fontes if you're not doing it in the original languages, right? That's the that's the Renaissance and Reformation view, and that's you know it's the it was the um, the return to the sources that, you know, from the, from the makers of, of the Reformation, right? As, yeah. as that's what that's what brought us the Reformation. Now, um, I think that for 
you know, I don't think that everyone, absolutely everyone should study, you know, a- ancient Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, although I think that a lot of people should. And I think that it's doable. Part of the reason why it seems so, um, like such a great task, I think is because of how it's been taught. Mm-hmm. I remember once one of my, one of the most heated, fiery Facebook posts, and not, in terms of the conversation, the post itself was simply a question like, should pastors be able to, um, you know, read Greek oh, competently? <laughs> I, and I was like, should this, and, and people were saying all sorts of things like, this is such an elitist, what an elitist thing. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, that I realized is that why does it seem elitist? Well, because it seems impossible. Right. And if you're only going to stare at grammar charts, it is impossible. Right. Um, so now I, the, in terms of the, you know, translations, translations are good. Translations are very valuable. They take a lot of work, um, but it's not the same as access to the text itself. And the reality is, is that we'll just need more translations and we're going to need good translators. And that's not because Latin is going to change. That's not because Greek is going to change or Hebrew. That's because English is going to change. I mean, if you look at, um, I had a student who was writing a dissertation on Calvin uh, and the Sabbath. <clears throat> and so we read everything that Calvin had to, to write about, about the Sabbath in Latin. And we would compare it to the, the commentaries that are available. And the translations are actually quite good. Very, very few mistakes in them. But if you read it, you just realize, wow, English has changed. <laughs> mm-hmm. right, the way right. that, that people you know, use certain terms has definitely changed. Oh, absolutely. Even with the King James version, it's I, I love the beauty of the King James. I read it for fun. It's a dangerous Bible to sure. use. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, because of how much the language has changed. And it's not just that, oh, I don't know what that means. It's your presumption that you understand. Right. There, there are certain words that you come yeah. at the King James Bible be- yeah. because of that, you know, dynamic element of, mm-hmm. of the English language, things like conversation. You yep. know, when the King James uses conversation, it's talking about lifestyle. Which just to make clear, and, I, you know, and if I'm misunderstanding uh, Jonathan here, just let me know, but this is this is part of that cry ad fontes, yep. right? Because the, 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 the fount, the source will will stay the same. Right. It's static. That's, right. that's the idea of a, of a language being static. The, the donor language, you know, and then the receptor language is going to, is, is being dynamic. Um, we need people who can, is what I'm hearing you say, we need people who can keep up with the changes in the modern languages. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, another reason why it's just really, really helpful to know the ancient languages is that sometimes there are some translations that even though they have a lot of praiseworthy elements to them, they also have some eye, eyebrow racing moments. <clears throat> so I'm thinking about the ESV, um, and I, if if you if you read certain passages, you can be like, "Hmm, this is why did they do this? Why did they go this route?" And there's a lot of issues that are kind of controversial with regards to you know egalitarianism and human sexuality and all those sorts of things that kind of I think push the ESV translators to be a little bit. Um, 
not 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 as faithful as they could have been in terms of their translation. But that's it, just one of the elements that you're gonna get in translations, or that you can get, I should say. You don't you don't have to. This is not a necessity. But sometimes there are some ideological influences that you might you you can just bypass if you're just looking at the text itself. And you know, there are so many benefits to a multilingual education. Sure. Um, and you know, I, so I I like Jonathan uh, grew up in two cultures. Um, but both of them are very much monolingual. So I'm American and Brazilian, immense countries with you know a language that's broadly spoken and no need uh, geographically, no pressure to learn other languages. So in Africa and Europe and many parts of Asia, uh, people are just naturally multilingual, right? right? But we're, we're not. And so I think it's easy for us to, to just take translation for granted. And to not understand that not only are there many different philosophies, you know, discount human error and and human, uh, you know, rhetorical goals. But, you know, with the different philosophies, different approaches, different backgrounds, different goals for the translations, so much can happen. And, of course, if the only way you can read the city of God uh, is in English, uh, that's what you should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but you but we should also realize that it's it's not simply a there's no one to one here. You know, the, the, the expression lost in translation exists for a reason. Right. I love that. Uh, I love that quote. And it's probably come up in this podcast before about poetry. It's attributed to, to different people at different times. But, you know, reading poetry in translation is like kissing through a handkerchief. Right. right. But all translation is like that to one degree. Right. Well, there, there's definitely buffering that happens. Absolutely. And, and there's such a spectrum on on the language, on the definitions of words, that there is room for translation opinions in, in terms Absolutely. of, you know, that, that you're interpreting more than just, you know, translation isn't like you said, one-to-one, it's not neutral. There is interpretive, um, you know, value taking place. So being able to read it in the primary sources is valuable, which I mean, extremely valuable. And that leads me to ask a, a very pointed question um, and not to take away from where you may have been going, but then is, is an education that we call classical education, truly classical if we're not if the, the students are not learning the classical languages. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> so before you answer, uh, you actually are stepping into the middle of a conversation that Scott and I uh, just unrelentingly revisit. And neither one of us has put a foot firmly down, but we're both on different sides of a spectrum here. So uh, welcome to, to this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, some, yeah. of the, some of the ideas that have come up that I've heard classical educators say is that you can learn um, everything you need in a classical language or, you know, to get a classical education, you can learn a different language and still get the same sort of things that you would get the critical mm. thinking and, and, mm-hmm. and so on. Well, even think, for example, like you, know, you often hear like, why should I study Latin? Well, scientific names, which has always struck right. me as, a, as an odd argument. But, you know, I mean, I can <laughs> yeah. study Spanish to get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I, I definitely agree that there are a lot of bad arguments for learning Latin. There are a lot of bad arguments. And, I, you know, I'm the Latin guy. I'm the one that's telling people to learn Latin. And if we are honest, there are, lot, there are a lot of bad arguments out there for why one should learn Latin. For instance, one of them is so that you can, if you, if you want to learn a Romance language, you should learn Latin. Well, why not just jump straight into Italian? 
right? Why not jump straight into French or what, whatever language? Why, why learn two languages when you're only interested in learning one? So as a standalone argument, it's not that great. Um, it's, a, it's a good argument for someone who wants to be like a philologist or a polyglot, right. but that's not everyone, right? That's not everyone. And you were mentioning some of the, some other arguments, like it's good for your brain, right? It's good for your brain. Well, lots of things are good for your brain. Why don't you study logic really well? Or Russian. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a syntax, <clears throat> man. Yeah. Arabic. Why don't you study yeah. Arabic? <laughs> if you're looking for a puzzler. <laughs> right. Classical Islamic philosophy. You get, you get, a, you get a real brain workout if you do that. Um, so yeah, they're, they're definitely, they're definitely bad arguments. Well, now in terms, sorry, please yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Continue. In terms of, uh, Scott, in terms of your question, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's mentioning, um, how some, some classical educators want to say, well, we can get these benefits. We can get these other benefits, right? Mm-hmm. From, we, we can get these benefits from learning another language. I think that that's indicative that the goal was not in the right place for for um, for Latin, right? Please if, say more. If, yeah. So if if the goal was okay, you're you're gonna get a brain workout, and because you're gonna be looking at a different language, you'll actually learn the grammar of your own. <clears throat> um, and if you have those sorts of arguments, like you know, improved SAT scores. Nobody, nobody should care about SAT scores. They should just, they should just every, all, all everything that has SAT printed on it should. Well, I don't know. I was about to say something rather. <laughs> well, just, get, just as a, <laughs> a, a quick aside here, I mean, um, I think most of the institutions, all Cal State has dropped SAT requirements. Um, I, I want there was a couple others. Um, uh, I think Harvard or Yale, one of the Ivy League schools. Yeah, they have bad reasons for doing a good thing. Yeah, right. So anyway, continue uh, on. So yeah, obviously SAT isn't a good reason. Right, right. So the the goal was not, I don't think was it was properly placed. Um, the reason to learn Latin and the reason to learn any language is because you want to communicate or be communicated to in that language. Uh, so that's a pretty broad. Yes. Well, that's a pre- you- yeah, so... So you want you want certain dead people to be talking to you. That's why you should learn Latin. And I think this want- brings us back. Uh, and I'm sorry, Jonathan. I haven't I haven't learned your rhythms because I keep interrupting you. I apologize. But I'm going to keep the mic now if you're okay with that. <laughs> uh, he's so he's so suave about interrupting and taking. It <laughs> yeah, I realized that I was probably on the verge of becoming the bad guy in this podcast. Why does he keep interrupting his guest? But I, I think that when you know, when you're you're talking about the proper placement of Latin, and we return to this ad fontes argument you want to be communicated to, we kind of return to uh, the the attack of, uh, well, this that's so snobbish, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's such snobbery to say that pastors should be able to, to converse in koine. Um, allow me to cite the great Jonathan Roberts. <laughs> so you have, a, you have this blog post uh, that, that really inspired this, this interview. And um, towards the end of it, you quote Reginald Foster, the Vatican's official <laughs> Latinist for many years. Um, and uh, he said, every bum and prostitute in ancient Rome spoke Latin and they didn't learn it by memorization. And so then Jonathan uh, finishes that off with Latin is not sui generis, a category unto itself, 
neither is Greek. They are languages like any other accessible through the same proven teaching methods. This is not snobbery at all. Right. Would yeah. you care to comment? No, I... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it, I don't think it's snobbery at all. I think that, like like I mentioned earlier, it seems snobbish because it seems impossible. Mm-hmm. It seems impossible because really bad methods have been used to teach these languages. I mean, I I've taught many seminarians who, after you know, after six weeks of studying Latin um, with me. They will tell me why didn't we do this? Do this with Greek and Hebrew. Mm-hmm. I would be able to read the Old and New Testament if we'd approached it in this way. If we'd approached the learning of Greek and Hebrew in this way, and so it's not that we're not spending time, right? Sem- seminaries still require Greek and Hebrew. It's just that the time spent is not well is not well used, um, and we also see these methods methods used in a lot of schools. I've at, at one point I was teaching students from classical stool, schools who'd um, spent more time studying Latin than I had. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, you've been spent, you've been studying Latin for six plus years right. and you can't read anything in mm-hmm. Latin. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a disservice. And, you know, I think that there's a lot uh, in, in seminaries, you see this, but also I think in classical education institutions, there's resignation. Sure. Pastors have to study Greek and you're mm-hmm. a student. You say, I have to study Greek. So everyone just conspires to get through it. And the same thing happens, I think, in high school and, and at younger ages. We, just, we, we have to do Latin because we said we're classical. Everyone just conspires to get through it. And there's not actually the joy of learning the language for itself. Sure. Well, so one one of the reasons that you you've mentioned that it seems to be somewhat elitist is because um, of of what you've just been describing that it seems almost impossible, but there also seems to be um, and you started to allude to this earlier or kind of went down this this path, but maybe there's another reason that it seems elitist is because. Um, why do we need to? Um, what and and I know we've answered it briefly about ad fontes, um, but maybe some people resist it because or think it's it's uh, elitist because they don't see the necessity of it. So what is the necessity of learning a classical language? And and I know you've already started going there, but I, I kind of wanted you to finish and maybe really elaborate. Yeah, yeah, and to to um, kind of bring back something Joffrey was saying, I think one of the reasons why it can be very difficult. It's because we are a nation of monoglots. Mm-hmm. Why it can be difficult for us to see the value of learning another language? It's like we've never exercised that muscle. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> we we haven't put ourselves in a position where we can competently look at a text, right, and then look at look at the translation and see what it is that we might be missing, or or start to get a sense as to what sorts of decisions the translator had to make. Right, so we we haven't put ourselves in situations where we can see what what uh, the value of going to the texts itself might be, because we're so used to, you know, working in English and thinking that it's just give it's giving us everything that we that we need. It's giving us everything that's that's helpful, and we can get a lot, of course. Um, but we're not we're not looking at the text itself. We're looking at a translation, 
Um, and so I think that that is one of the um, one of the things to to recover is putting people in this in situations where they can actually see what it is that they're gaining. So they need to what taste the mole to use your earlier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. It's, it's kind of the, the, the thing. You just need to see it. Mm-hmm. You just need to see what, you know, what the text actually looks like also. This now we've, we're going to wrap up here, but I do have one, one more question. Just want to ask you, uh, and this might be putting you on the spot. So maybe we'll, we'll be ending sooner, but uh, <laughs> Part two. Uh, here we go. Uh, no, just, can you give us an example? Like what, what might a student who's never in, in engaged Latin um, and what surprise, what to go back to an earlier podcast, what serendipitous uh, encounter might they, you know, can you give us an example? Yeah. One, one thing that I've noticed with my students <clears throat> is at some point I have them read the Vulgate in, in Latin mm. and they can, they can usually do that pretty easily um, because, you know, it's the, the language of the Vulgate is, is fairly straightforward and simple, but because students are reading, uh, reading um, in Latin, the, the, the text, they read it, a bit more carefully mm-hmm. they take their time and they they see they see the stories that they've encountered many times in a fresh light and and they are surprised by all sorts of things so the other day i was reading with one of uh, with one of my students john chapter 2 and that that phrase in translation that says when they had when they had had enough to drink Right, and uh, Latin is inebriati, mm. where we get the word inebriated. Mm. Right, <laughs> um, and then I looked at at the at the Greek, and it's also it's a word that means to get drunk. Right, and when when Odysseus gives wine to the Cyclops and he gets drunk, that's that's the word. That's the word that's being used. Um, so anyway, you get you get all sorts of. Um, the text is not sanitized. Nice. Well, that's often what translations do. Mm-hmm. So you get unfiltered, unsanitized um, text. Sometimes even our translations have tried to improve upon the piety of, of scripture, it seems. Um, and, and you don't get that when you're looking at the, at the translations. And even, even if you're looking at it through Latin, for instance, there's things there different filters, different languages are going to have different, different filters. That's fascinating. Very fascinating. Well, unfortunately we've come to the end of our time and there's so many other things that we would love to explore. Maybe you could um, tell folks where would they find, um, where would they find your courses? How could they get a hold of you at the ancient language Institute? Yeah. If they just head on to ancientlanguage.com, they will be able to see our, Greek and Latin offerings, and and soon um, Hebrew as well. So that's uh, that's where they can they can find us. Wonderful. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for meeting with us and and having this conversation. We really enjoyed reading your article and and really appreciate the work you're doing. Uh, so uh, 
folks. Hope you enjoy and uh, check out Jonathan's website. Look at the Ancient Language uh, Institute and also check out some of uh, Kepler's Latin teachers as well. And we have several teachers who are uh, also teaching a very similar approach to Jonathan. And and so you can get a a variety of approaches to uh, learning ancient languages there. So, so long. So long, everybody.